0: Welcome to the podcast tonight on the Sunday Night Health Show. We speak to Professor Mike Brower of the University of British Columbia about a study he authored with regard to the possible mental health concerns around living near busy roads or highways. It's week three of the Bio Diet. Dr. David G. Harper joins us to chat about the journey, and we also chat about rare diseases with Kim and have a conversation about sex and happiness. We open the show tonight with broken hearts with the loss of Kobe Bryant, a longtime Lakers basketball player, his daughter, their friends, a pilot, a basketball coach. Life is so precious and can change in an instant. Good evening and welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show. Your health is your wealth. Through the expertise of my guests and storytelling, along with review of the evidence, I hope to educate you on the benefits of good health. My objective is that you are not only a little bit better informed, but healthier and happier. You know, sex and intimacy has a lot to do with that as well. And we'll learn about that a little bit later on in the program. Sex facilitates feelings of intimacy, which does a lot more than make you feel warm and fuzzy all over. It actually boosts your overall health. So with that, it's time to put those kids to bed. Remember, the show is not a replacement for a visit to your doctor for whatever ails you. Thank you for joining me this evening. If you have a question for me or there's something you'd like me to cover, feel free to email me at com, or you can call me at one 399 9898 That's 1-877-399-9898. Tonight on the program, we're talking about walking while texting. How many times have you bumped into, anybody, into somebody? And my bio diet update. You'll learn about my struggles and my successes. Rare diseases and heterosexual marital sex. Is that a thing? The Church of England thinks it is. But right now, I want to talk about...
1: Maureen's Health
0: Headline. Do you live near a major road? Did you know that may increase your risk of Alzheimer's disease, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, and other types of dementia? And joining me on the line is Professor Mike Brower of the University of British Columbia, who authored this study and he's going to make some sense out of it for us. Good evening, Mike. Good evening. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Very good. Um so this was a very interesting study. We have very little uh, in terms of research that, you know, determines whether we are going to um, develop any one of the dementias or Alzheimer- Alzheimer's, um, MS, Parkinson's. This was a pretty surprising study to me anyway. So um, can you help us make some sense out of it?
2: Yeah, so a- absolutely. Um, and what we were looking at um, was really just to see if there, there was a relationship between um, what we hypothesized was exposure to air pollution. A few studies have started to suggest that air pollution can affect um, cognitive decline in adults, um, and really we wanted to see how it affected these major diseases. And as you said, um, even though these are increasingly important amongst the population, we really don't know a whole lot about what the risk factors are um, so what we found was um, that, indeed, um, people who live closer to major roads, um, there was an increased risk, especially of, of um, Parkinson's and non-Alzheimer's dementia, so dementia from, from other causes. And just to put it in perspective, what we found was really it wasn't a big risk, but because so many people um, live in that kind of situation, on, in aggregate for the population, it becomes quite important.
0: Absolutely. And this study was done in Vancouver, British Columbia, and there were close to 700,000 adults that you looked at over... Um, a period of time, a significant period of time um, from 1994 to 98 and then 1999 to 2003. Uh, I have a question about if it's related to pollutants, do you see the same increased risk in people who have lived on farms where a lot of pesticides have been used? Is there an increased risk of cognitive decline in that population as well?
2: So I'm not aware. Um, yes or no? Um, it's not. It's not something that we've we've studied in, in particular. Um, there have been a few other studies of different forms of of pollution that have shown this kind of thing, but. Uh, um, but, I, yeah, I just don't know about uh, pesticide exposure.
0: And and I was quite surprised as well at the identification of the diseases. So we all, we're all thinking about Alzheimer's disease quite often, and yet there aren't nearly as many cases of Alzheimer's disease, a form of dementia, as there are of non-Alzheimer's disease dementia, like posterior cortical atrophy and Lewy body and some of the other dementias. So I was quite surprised that there were nearly 10 times as many uh, people living in Vancouver with that type of dementia or those different types of dementia?
2: Yeah, I, I, I'd be cautious about sort of making too much of that. What we were using for this were, um, was basically administrative data. So data that's used for, for billing, um, mm-hmm. or for just, um, you know, in this case, um, uh, when we're looking at, uh, hospitalization, for example. So, um, to get the diagnosis of Alzheimer's, you basically would have to observe plaques, and and that just isn't done in, in lots of uh, lots of cases. So, um, so, and increasingly in in dementia, I think we're seeing that there's really um, sort of a whole spectrum um, of of many things. So the the sort of idea actually of Alzheimer's being something actually necessarily that's very unique or specific, I think that's probably something that is an oversimplification itself.
0: Right. So we can assume that a lot of those cases, potentially, of the non-Alzheimer's dementia may actually go on to be diagnosed as dementia if an MRI was done. That's where is that where you see the plaques and the tangles?
2: Uh, possibly, or that actually there's just, um, you know, there, there's been more emphasis on Alzheimer's itself um, and less on sort of other forms of, of dementia. Okay. Um, The the unique thing about this is that it is basically covering the entire adult population. So this is just what we see, but this is what we see in terms of, you know, what diagnoses are given.
0: Right. So it's not so great if we live um, within 150 meters from a highway or 50 meters from a major road. That, that, you know, a lot of us do that.
2: Yeah, yeah. So it's like, so 50 meters from a major road or 150 meters from a highway. In general, when we see sort of in in an urban area, that could be up to a third of the population. So when we've looked at this, for example, across Canada, um, and similar in the US, um, it it seems to be somewhere near a third of the population. So the solution obviously isn't for everybody to move away from roads. Uh, Not everybody can do that. Um, The solution is really to think about this in in terms of, of urban planning. So can we uh, separate roads from people? Can we just decrease our overall dependence on, on roads and, and, and motor vehicles and think about other forms of, uh, of mobility, whether it's transit, cycling, walking, et cetera? Um, that, that's really a solution. And then the other thing that was really interesting and sort of the positive message in this study is that we also looked at, at green space, um, and this is a satellite measure, so it's not just large parks. It could actually be sort of street trees, um, that kind of thing. And we saw that that was protective, so that seemed to um, negate some of the effect um, of air pollution, uh, which is which is a real positive.
0: Absolutely. Now, does it have anything to do with uh, when there's when you live on a tree-lined street, you're more likely to walk, um, or those people are more likely to. Um, have the time to exercise? Did, did exercise or time spent in that park walking to it or walking along your tree-lined street um, have anything to do with it or was it the oxygen uh, that is given off in green spaces?
2: So we, we don't know in terms of this study, but we, we do know clearly that, that physical activity is, um, is protective against uh, dementia. So that's, that's been sort of, I, I think, quite clear um, from other research. How this sort of vegetation, green space works, there's, there's a number of possibilities. So one is, is as you said, it, it could be that these are large enough spaces that provide um, opportunity for physical activity. Um, but there's also research that suggests it may just be visual. Um, so even just the, there's a stress-reducing uh, component to just seeing vegetation um, we're sort of evolutionary progr- evolutionarily programmed to actually want to be in natural spaces, want to be in nature. So that that's shown to be stress-producing. Um, but also green spaces may also be spaces that are more conducive to, to social interactions. And again, that's something that we know um, can also be protective for, for dementia. So in, in this kind of study, we really weren't able to look at this in detail because we were just looking at the whole population in general, but um, those are basically some avenues that we want to probe into in the future.
0: Right. I mean, it was very interesting research, and I think um, perhaps you're onto something here. Um, And where would you take this? What would be your next likely Um, type of research? uh, Because I also want to mention that this is for non-Alzheimer's dementia and Parkinson's disease and MS as well. So you saw a bit of an increase, not only in those diagnosed with Alzheimer's, but with some of the other uh, neurological progressive neurodegenerative diseases also. Um, So what would you like to do as a next step kind of a thing if...
2: Okay. So we want to we want to do two things. I mean, the first thing we're going to do is actually try and replicate this um, uh, across the entire Canadian population. So we want to be sure that um, this isn't some other factor that we're just sort of associating with, um, you know, different parts of the city where where people live. I think it's unlikely, um, but we really want to want to clarify that. And also, if we can look at this across the whole country, we'll have sort of different combinations of level of pollution, level of greenness, um, perhaps even be able to have a large enough study so we can separate this out by, um, you know, other factors uh, in in the population. So that's one thing. And then the second thing I think would be to try and um, not look at this sort of hard um, diagnosis but look at at measures of of cognitive decline to really try and follow um, people as they age. Um, and and see if you can look at the the progression of this and see if that that's also showing up and that would really be supportive of, of what we're finding here, both from the the negative aspect of the 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 air pollution, but also the perhaps the positive of, of the green space.
0: Well, that's excellent, Professor Brower. Where can people or the listeners um, read this study if? Uh they were interested in learning more.
2: So, yeah, this is um, this is online uh, and openly accessible in uh, a journal called Environmental Health. Um, and I think if you just searched uh, road proximity environmental health, um, my name, you'd probably find it.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Uh, Professor Brough. really appreciate it. And good luck with the um, successive research uh, that you're going to be doing. I'll be very interested and we'll get you back to learn a little bit more about that. Thank you. Um, Okay, so uh, you heard about that walking in green spaces. Well, what about walking in green spaces while you're texting? What happens then? Stay with me. I'm Maureen McGrath. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. Okay, welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. We're going to start out with a caller. If Catherine on the line. Hello, Catherine.
1: Oh, hi, Maureen. How are you? I'm hanging in. Fabulous. I, <laughs> I, I really want to comment on the last person you had on about the environmental medicine. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to say that I have had environmental hypersensitivity disorder for over a decade. And I was diagnosed in Ontario by the fellow Dr. Malott. He was the doctor that had put in place the Women's Host College Hospital in Toronto for mm-hmm. people with my disorder. Mm-hmm. And he actually has a course that you take if you want to be a doctor. So if, if you want to get, get your degree, you have to go through his course now.
0: Mm-hmm. And tell me how he, this um, uh, manifests in you, Catherine.
1: Chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia severe. And it was a hidden um, toxic mold in our condo that was causing it, and there was layers of it, and we didn't know. And in Ontario, they have the worst um, toxigenic mold out there called stachybotrys, which we had high levels.
0: That's terrible. Is there anything you can do about this?
1: Oh, you have to live by the water. Oh, by the water. I guess no, you know about, right? I, fresh air. <laughs> Well, I, I like the away. water. <laughs> uh, I think yeah. it's
0: a good idea to live by the water. But um, how about a park? Does that help?
1: As well, you the, got the pesticides, like you said. It doesn't, inf- it highly affects me.
0: Yeah, but he was talking about green space, just having a tree lined street and, it's, you know, um, maybe, maybe yeah, it's the oxygen. The oxygen, or maybe it's a social me, interaction. Yeah. Everybody meets under the old oak tree. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, everything you... helps, right? Try everything. Do you exercise a lot, Catherine?
1: I do. I have to. Oh, that's I excellent. Have to excellent. The fibromyalgia. Oh, yep. yeah.
0: Are you doing the bio diet by any chance? Are you following us on that? Have you heard the show before?
1: No, I don't know, but I do drink a lot of coconut water and a lot of water um, because that helps with the fibromyalgia.
0: Well, that's great. Well, maybe you should listen into the uh, bio diet now, and that might help things. You never know.
1: Well, I do do the organic diet, so I don't know. Is that part of it?
0: Well, well, stay tuned, and there's lots to learn.
1: Okay. All right. Thank Thank you you. so
0: much for the call. Take care of yourself, Catherine. All right. So now we're going to get to the bio diet, and David G. Harper, the author of The Bio Diet, The Scientifically Proven Ketogenic Way to Lose Weight and Improve Your Health. And we're on to kind of week four here, David. Thanks Mm -hmm. for joining me in the studio. Oh, glad to be back. Alright, and so I've been following your wisdom mm-hmm. and Can <laughs> and I just science. to, to sure. uh,
3: Catherine, um, uh, the ketogenic diets uh, by design should be anti-inflammatory. Mm-hmm. So I've never, I don't know of any studies specifically for chronic fatigue syndrome or fibromyalgia, but be, those both have a chronic inflammation as part of them. So it, it, in theory, it should, should should be helpful.
0: Right. Okay. I actually wondered that. I didn't want to say that because I, I wasn't 100% of fibromyalgia I had a, but I feel like every Every disease has an inflama- has an inflammatory component. Yeah, well, if you go back to most. the,
3: the uh, axis of illness, it's one of the three mm-hmm. factors, which is obesity, inflammation, and insulin resistance, and that's exactly what uh, well-formulated ketogenic diet is designed to address, all three of those things.
0: Excellent. So why am I feeling so awful, David? No, I'm just
3: kidding. <laughs> well, no, you are, I think we were talking off air and before the show, I, I think you were experiencing a little bit of what we call the keto flu. Oh, is this the yes, keto flu? This is the flu? keto flu, Can yes. I get my symptoms first? Sure. Do you- <laughs> I can't be around humans right. Yeah, That's yeah. it,
0: I can't be around humans Okay, We'll
3: leave it at that, shall we? <laughs> yes, we will um, Let's talk about the, we could call it a sort of an intestinal urgency that's demanding <laughs> attention from time to time That is so not me normally <laughs> Okay, so that's, and that's the thing, you're making a big change and when I you guess. make a big change, you're gonna you're gonna have some some things that will change. And, and the good the good news is that this is transitory, so it will uh, fix itself after your body adapts. But this is your no little... pun intended. Yeah. This
0: too shall pass. <laughs> Do we have any sound effects
3: there? No, no, I'm not going to do my side. I I left those behind when I was a kid. I thought Andrew
0: might have. But we've
3: now, we've now, we've now, and you know what? You were we again. You went into this a little more aggressively, which is what what I did when I started before I learned about uh, how to do this best, and that's why we did the first two weeks. So we remember week one was Mm bioassessment, measuring up. Week two is the preparation. And mm. that was a two-week, so it was week two and three. Right. Uh, that first cut out sugar and then cut out high glycemic index starch. And now we're ready to go hardcore into uh, a true ketogenic diet, where we're going to eliminate carbohydrate as much as possible. But you are now because you went in a little early and a little, which some people do. You know, they want to rush into it. But you will, if you rush into it, most people experience some keto flu symptoms. So, shall we talk about those? Sure. Sure. So, um, uh, some of it has to do with the diuretic effect, the water loss effect, because mm-hmm. for every gram of carbohydrate you store, you store about 4 grams of, of, um, of water. And when that carbohydrate comes out of its storage, the water comes out too. And so does salt, by the way. And so you lose salt and you lose water, which is why one of the things on a ketogenic diet you have to do is stay well hydrated. Mm-hmm. So lots of water all the time. And also increase your salts. And most of the symptoms of uh, keto flu or adaptation, bioadaptation to the uh, ketogenic diet, are due to either the diuretic effect, lower blood pressure, which is like dizziness and some lightheadedness perhaps, um, or they're due to salt imbalances. So when I talk about salts, we're talking about table salt, that's sodium. We're also talking about potassium, which is a little harder to get. You can not actually get potassium tablets, but it's the ratio of sodium to potassium that's important. And oh, it's your, I was taking yeah.
0: potassium as well because mm-hmm. I figured this. I'm not a big salt consumer, but I have added salt since I've been doing the ketogenic diet. Um, Last night, coarse kosher salt was Mm -hmm. one of the ingredients in the... um, almond flour pizza crust nice <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. too okay. salty though Yeah,
3: well of those are those big granules yes of yeah, yeah it was too salty yeah um, and the other thing of course the big uh, the big one is magnesium so so for those people as we go into this bioadaptation which is going to take a couple of weeks for most people and when you if you're going to experience symptoms uh that are unpleasant this is when you're going to find them
0: so which ki- kind of magnesium should we take
3: uh, you know, it's 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 up to you. So uh, there, you can go as expensive as you want. You know, they have all these bioavailable fancy things, but don't uh, <laughs> don't use uh, magnesium oxalate because right. that's that's the sort of one that that causes. Uh, it helps you clear the system. Let's right, say that's exactly. milk of magnesia.
0: Okay,
3: um, but magnesium citrate is fine. There are some fancier ones, but it's just and it's really hard to measure magnesium. But it's such an important mineral. It does about you know we think about vitamin C, we think about vitamin D, as you're saying. Magnesium does about two hundred different important metabolic functions. So it's really... Really important to get enough. And my basic theory is, as long as your kidneys and liver are healthy, mm-hmm. is just give yourself lots of all of those salts and yes. let your kidneys sort it out. And okay. If you take lots of the salts right. and lots of water, let your kidneys. Okay. Sort it out.
0: And table salt, so potassium table and, and salt. And table salt. And yeah. Magnesium. If you're
3: craving salt, for sure, use that salt shaker.
0: Yeah, I I'm, I haven't been craving salt. Do you know I,
3: the major source of salt in the average North American diet? Uh, the salt shaker. <laughs> You'd think that's <laughs> You'd think. actually it's not. It's bread. Ooh. Bread actually has tons of salt in it. So because we're not eating bread, about 40 to 60% of the salt intake is processed foods, including bread. So since we're not eating any of those starchy processed foods, you actually need to add more sodium or else you could be sodium depleted. Right. Okay. I can see that. Mm -hmm. It all makes sense. I was blaming the MCT oil. Could be.
0: Oh, could be. Okay. Well, you know,
3: usually MCT oil is, is more of uh, it loosens things up, let's say, and it, it could create a, a rather immediate um, urgency. <laughs> so, right. So right. you don't want to have a whole uh, slug of MCT oil and then get in a one hour drive commute to work or something like exactly. that. Exactly. So Try just, a little experiment on the weekend this first.
0: This sort of keto flu has yeah. only seemed to occur when I had the MCT oil, could but be. I can see that I'm maybe missing the magnesium citrate. And,
3: well, um, or, or a probiotic. Now we talked about right? that. You're not using, now you can use a probiotic. No, I forgot. Um, Now, if you use a probiotic, you pretty much have to take it every day. As soon as you stop taking it, it stops working. But Mm -hmm. I recommend people get on a probiotic and the uh, bacteria you want to look on the label it's mm-hmm. uh, it's it, just look for the infantus it's called Bifobacterium infantus like infant so it's the same kind of bacteria that's in little in little baby poo
0: okay
3: and that's actually a really healthy bacteria
0: Bifobacteria infantus
3: uh bifido bif, bifidobacterium bifido, infantus okay. yeah that's the probiotic and there's a number of name brands i don't want to mention that uh, okay. you can find them in your in your in your uh, okay Store So, so that's, uh, and, and the MCTL again, ease into that because what mm-hmm. you're trying to do there is just introduce yourself to the ketones. But during this stage, you're going to be producing a lot of ketones. And that, that reminds me too, those keto sticks that mm-hmm. you can also get Got there. them. Okay, so you want to be peeing on those first thing in the morning Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, follow the instructions. You pee on them, you wait 15 seconds, you compare it to the little color strip on the side Mm -hmm. of the box. Yes. And that'll start getting browner and browner uh, as you really uh, restrict uh, Mm -hmm. carbohydrates. So we're taking all carbohydrates out of the diet. So anything that grows above the ground that's not a bean or a grain is sort Mm -hmm. of fair game. And any kind of you know any kind of meat or animal protein or whatever tofu, that sort of stuff is good. What we don't want to do is eat a lot, too many nuts, so maybe just a handful of nuts a day at most. Okay. Uh, Brazil nuts are particularly good because they're quite meaty, so even uh, one or two Brazil nuts, you know, if you're feeling hungry, is pretty good. Okay. And, and limit the cheese again to just uh-huh. a, a couple of ounces of cheese. Okay, No fruit. Oh no, fruit at all? No, just for a <laughs> little while. I'm gonna die. Just for a little while. No, no, we'll bring it back, and 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 we're still abstaining, right? Because it's dryuary, so we're not drinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The- yeah, no problem, right. right? Except next Sunday, fortunately, it's February, it's Super Bowl Sunday, but okay, I'll be back. I, I'll I'll have my glass of wine after after we do okay, our show. Okay,
0: perfect. Okay, I, I'd rather have fruit instead of the wine, but that's okay. <laughs> we can do that. That's going to be disappointing and yeah. difficult. Um. Okay, so we're gonna go to break right now. Sure. And if you have a question at all about the keto diet, one 877 9898 the bio diet, um, which is a scientifically proven keto diet, you can give us a call one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. I will say I have dropped about seven pounds. Nice. And I have about an inch off of my waist. Nice. And I, I have noticed that the energy has increased. I'm back to swim after a three week illness yeah. um, of a cold, so I and flu. I couldn't All go right. into the pool. So I'm back to swimming an hour a day. And f- okay. no feeling no pain. We'll uh, talk about fine. the Harper
3: High after the break. Yes we'll yeah.
0: talk about the Harper <laughs> High because we've got the Momo low right now. <laughs> anyway um, so when we come back we'll answer your question take your calls, and um, also we've got a few recipes that I certainly enjoyed this weekend. I'm Maureen McGrath, and this is the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. David G. Harper, PhD, is my guest in studio. We are talking about the bio diet, and we've been doing this for a few weeks. We have several more to go. The scientifically proven ketogenic weight Ketogenic way to lose weight and improve your health. Double whammy there. David, thanks for staying in the studio. Um, so I had a question uh, presented to me about, and I, I didn't really know the answer, um, about portion sizes. Right. How much should people be eating of this? Like, can you have, you know, three chicken legs or? <laughs> Is uh, and want. two steaks. <laughs> That's the <little> rule book. I have to say, my uh, appetites decrease. So you well, know, I have been known to say, "I need a chicken leg right now." But <laughs>
3: yeah, well, you know, I think uh, the general thing is, listen to your body. If you if you feel hungry, eat. And mm-hmm. and the thing is, once you start eating, if you have, a, when you feel full, just stop. Like you don't have to clean the plate. That's something I think we learned from our parents who went through the, right. the depression. You know, you're wasting food if you don't eat. It. Just put it back in the fridge or whatever. So just eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full. And how much can you eat of one thing? Well, as long as it's a healthy thing, you know, it's eat, okay. Uh, it's
0: okay to eat. Then a lot to of, eat, a of you chicken. know, both chicken.
3: Legs. Sure. Walk yeah.
0: around Disney World with the turkey legs. <laughs> like Fred Flintstone <laughs> have with the Brontosaurus that? burger.
3: Yeah. <laughs> that sounds good to me right now,
0: uh, a Brontosaurus <clears throat> burger. Okay, uh, what are some of the common mistakes people make with the
3: yeah, diet diet? Well, uh, s- no, most of the people I counsel are women. Um, and uh, one of the mistakes women make, because a lot of women have already dieted much more than men. This is just uh, from the mm-hmm. data we know. And what women do is they're great at cutting the carbs out. But they don't add the fat because you know we've they're been afraid. telling people for forty years, not to, and they're afraid that eating fat gets you fat. Actually, eating fat gets you skinny. It increases your metabolism to some degree. A ketogenic diet will increase your metabolism two hundred to five hundred calories a day, typically. Wow! But you must add that fat. That's the whole point: is we're taking the carbohydrates out and we're adding fat in. So these are good fats, like you know, grass fed is great because it's high in omega three, and olive oil, macadamia oil, avocado oil; those are all wonderful. That's,
0: okay, and that's higher fat. Is that higher fat than traditional?
3: No, no, it's the same fat, but but, you know, because it's so energy dense compared to like a vegetable Uh and and you still want you to eat your vegetables too, but you don't have to eat a lot of it. So if you want to get all, if you want to get your 70% of your calories just Uh from fat, it's only two thirds of a cup of olive oil a day. So that's not that much fat when you think about, you know, a bit of butter or oil or that. Just put oil on your, you know, your vegetables or right. butter on, you can even, the steak you had, you could put about butter on your steak. I'll right. Funny story about that one. I could tell you some other time. But, and the, another thing to do um, is, uh, so that you don't sort of impulse eat, is to plan your meals. Remember, planning and commitment are two right. of the key psychological things. Part of the bio diet is not just about what to eat, but how to sustain it. Mm-hmm. So plan your meals for the week write them down, go and buy the foods and so on on the weekend or whatever. And and uh, and then that will prevent you from from tripping up and, and, and getting off the wagon there. So, I have a question
0: about sugar. Sure. So um, somebody emailed me and asked me about- Sugar yeah, cravings? Always, yeah, sugar cravings, but they'd always been taught that, um, and she's a uh, type two diabetic and oh, okay, she's yeah. on metformin, yeah. but she said she'd always been taught that you can have seven grams or less in say yogurt, for example, is that okay on the bio diet?
3: Uh, two questions there. Okay, first of all, uh, those people that are type 2 diabetics that are taking metformin and or insulin, they have to be particularly careful to watch their uh, their blood sugar levels because mm-hmm. often we have seen people uh, um, reverse their diabetes in as little as three days. Now, this isn't normal. Typically, it's about 75% increase in insulin sensitivity in four weeks. So mm-hmm. it, it, for most people, it takes a while. But you could have a sudden not need for your medication and you really have to monitor that carefully so that's one thing and that's why working with the doctor is important your own doctor yeah and the other thing we want to get as much carbohydrate out as possible now yogurt is the exception I'm glad you mentioned that one because even unsweetened yogurt will say it has you know seven or nine grams of sugar in there that's because that's what makes yogurt yogurt. You take mm-hmm. the milk and you, you feed the bacteria in there, which makes lactic acid, which is why it's kind of tart and not sweet. Mm-hmm. So in general, if it tastes sweet, it is sweet. So it's either sweetened with sugar or sweetened with an artificial sweetener. Okay. But yogurts are, uh, you got to be careful with those because the ones that are and they have tons of sugar in them. It's Even like, if they just say uh, seven grams? No, seven grams is probably sugar-free because you need okay. about that much in order okay. to uh, to convert. So to those that little muscle.
0: coconut ones, maybe that the plain coconut yogurt e, with sure, seven yeah. grams. Actually, of sugar, I just okay? do
3: plain. What I do is I do plain. Mm-hmm. I, I use an artificial sweetener xylitol, and mm-hmm. and then I put in a little like a quarter teaspoonful or something of vanilla, and it's just fantastic. Okay. Like vanilla, and Sounds and uh, like a so the other the good news is, mm-hmm. what happens with roughly half of the people I've counseled is they will sort of suddenly start metabolizing ketones in their brain very effectively. And Mm -hmm. they will usually wake up one day and it's like they have been reborn. It's mm. like uh, one woman, she, it was perfect. She said, Dave, thank you. It's like someone just pulled cotton wool out of my brain that's been there for 10 years. Wow. That sort of brain fog. So that often clears very suddenly when your brain starts switching on and burning those ketones, right. ketones, which it likes to do. Yeah. And you'll get this incre- increased alertness, increased um, awareness. And, and my friends jokingly call it the Harper High. So okay. this, is, this is one of the good side effects. that. So if, if any of the listeners out there are doing the bio diet along with us, we'll call them bio dieters, I guess, I and they forward. have the Harper High, let us know. You can, you can send me a note, uh, david at org. That would be great to hear from you. I don't have it yet. Well, and and, and make sure you have a it. reward for the end of this two weeks. Think about what your reward's going to be. Okay. And you can have a drink after, after the end of the two weeks. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if I can
0: stand up <laughs> We'll check in again in a week. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, and I just did want to mention that I had some blueberry, almond flour, blueberry pancakes right. this weekend, and yep. they were quite surprisingly quite delicious. Yeah. And I, I, used I sugar-free I, maple syrup. Yep.
3: Uh, The same thing today. I make those as well. Uh, We can talk about... We're going to put some recipes up on the website as well, including those egg muffins last week. And I brought Maureen some... Uh, some delicious cauliflower mash, which is has some like parmesan um, and truffle salt in it, which is really so you're gonna have to try that. Which she it. can't eat just yet, but she will
0: because <laughs> she's suffering here behind the mic. You have no idea. I nearly went to the emergency department myself. I it was appendicitis. No, it's <laughs> it, it, you know what?
3: Intestinal pain is very common during. Okay. the keto flu. It's probably because you rushed into it. You're not hydrating enough, and your salts aren't. Right. Okay. So well, generally I'm you say you get change, the salts
0: right. I'm gonna change all that. <laughs>
3: All right. I'm with you. I'm uh, with you. I've got your back excellent. here.
0: Excellent. If people want to order your book, which I suggest you yeah. do, because it's it's quite the Bible. And um, and you know what? I do owe somebody in Winnipeg this book, so I'll be sending this out after <laughs> I sign it for you. Um, but you can go onto your website? Yeah, you can is, order from
3: the website. We have all the links to the usual online sales. Or it's in all of the big box stores, uh, the the bricks and mortar stores as okay, well. Okay,
0: okay. And so it's very good. And I probably did rush into it too much, um, but that's okay. That's why I run really fast, so I can get the thing over with. <laughs> yeah. um, um, the race over with. So it's the same That's part of, of your thing. psychology. I that think, is. Yeah. It's part of my psychology. Yeah. Just do it quickly.
3: It's the mow plow. Uh, just hurry
0: up. Get it over with. I'm like the expert at quickies. Yeah. No. <laughs> quickie anything. That's me. Anyway, Isn't David... Isn't that for later on the show? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's after 9.30. We'll right. do a quickie then. Right. Um Listen, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, my and, pleasure. will uh, see you next week. updating everybody. Yes, that's wonderful. Um, David G. Harper, PhD, author of The Bio-Diet, The Scientifically Proven Way, Ketogenic Way to Lose Weight and your health, and it's never too late to join in. Uh, I had an email this week, Maureen, why don't you ever talk about rare diseases? Well, I've got a patient who's going to share her story about her rare disease. I am Maureen McGrath, and this is the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. Lots to talk about in this hour as well. We're talking about... um, the shock that heterosexual married people might actually have sex a little bit later. I'm also talking about what sex does for you and uh, emotional health as well, or what emotional neglect, the risk of emotional neglect, which is what I forgot to talk to you about last week or or got sidetracked. Anyway, um, but uh, right now I had an email last week about asking me why I rarely talk about rare diseases. There are approximately 7,000 rare diseases. Perhaps you've heard of, of progeria um, being one of them. Well, joining me on the line is Kim, and Kim herself has a rare disease, and I'm so grateful to her because she is willing to share her story about her rare disease. Hello, Kim. Hi, Marie. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm great. Oh, good. Thank you so that much for good. joining me. I, I always say when people share their stories, they empower other people. So thank you so much. Namaste to you, my friend. Oh, thanks. Um, so you have something called Dekram's disease? No, Durkham's disease? Oh, so Durkham's disease. oh no. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's <laughs>
4: rare. No yes. one's ever really
0: heard of it. Durkham's disease.
4: Yeah.
0: Um, okay. Uh, Durkham's disease. So tell me a little bit about Durkham's disease. What exactly is it?
4: Well, in general, I tell people I grow painful fatty lipomas all over my body that press on nerves. Now, a recent journal paper by Dr. Karen Hertz describes it medically as, let me see if I can get this right, subcutaneous adipose tissue diseases involving adipose tissue and its fascia, also known as adipofacial disorder. Now there's other fat disorders, but durkham 's disease is what I suffer from those with durkham 's disease don't easily lose weight with standard diet and exercise, drug therapies or even bariatric surgery but because of the fibrosis I guess within our tissues, it appears to be the root of our pain and
0: so because of that fatty lipoma that's pressing on the nerve, I imagine that you get significant uh, a significant amount of pain on a day on the daily
4: it's It's bizarre, really, how you'd have to describe it because it's like electric neuropathy type nerve pain, and it can shoot anywhere from anywhere at any time.
0: Because you have these lipomas all over your body, and there's nothing worse than nerve pain. I think that has to be the worst type of pain. Oof! So, because your disease, Durkham's disease is, and D E R C U M is how you spell that
4: r um, e u m apostrophe S, durkham's disease they Dur- call it, it's the real name, but there's you know of course there's all kinds of adiposa de la Rosa. there's a medical name for every corner right
0: right um <laughs> but, but this is, is right. rare this is is so rare, so does it go undiagnosed because it's so rare and people don't know what it is never mind how to say it
4: yes, yes, for sure it is like there's there's just hardly i've only ever run into a few that have even heard of it.
0: Is that right? And so, so many people might actually be suffering with this disease and not be diagnosed because physicians, healthcare providers, nurse practitioners aren't familiar with it. Would you say that's a fair statement? Fair. Absolutely. So what is the biggest problem with Durkham's disease?
4: Well, I would say pain, but it's also progressive and incurable. Pain, like painful fat and lipomas are always increasing for me. So, like, sitting, standing, or even laying in my sick memory foam bed is really becoming harder for me. But imagine walking or sitting on marbles.
0: And and never mind that, I mean, how about working? It would make it extremely difficult for somebody to work or to care for others or uh, take well, care of in children. in my
4: situation, I had to stop working, and I'm permanently disabled from that and many other things I have. But I was a legal assistant, and I loved my job in estates and probate like it was amazing my favorite dream job and it's gone
0: oh i'm so That's sorry i'm so sorry to hear that
4: uh, but, you know like like others we come out of work and become disabled for many reasons
1: right mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
4: this is mine right How how old were you when you were diagnosed Um, Well, I was diagnosed in 2018 by this Dr. Herbst in Arizona, and she's the world-renowned expert in fat disorders. So I knew I eventually, like it took over five years for my diagnosis. I knew I had to get there.
0: And how long had you been suffering?
4: Oh, I've been suffering probably my whole life with this, she thinks, possibly. Like I've had fibromyalgia since I was a small child, and she said it is possible to have Durkham's as a child, And it may have just been misdiagnosed. Finally, I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia at 13.
0: Wow. And did you have the fatty lipomas at that age?
4: Uh, No, but I had them starting to be removed off of my SI joint at 18 or 1982. Oh, wow. Wow. Like I've been growing these things for a very, very long time.
0: For a long time, yes. And yeah. and I mean, I really cannot thank you enough for sharing your story with. And I know you've got a big smile on your face. You just sound like such a lovely person. Now, is there a cure for
4: this? Well, no, but there's treatment modalities, and I feel the most effective is this specialized lymph sparing liposuction to reduce the bulk of our diseased fat and painful lipomas. Like, liposuction helps us thrive better in our day-to-day and improves our mobility issues. Like, there's more conservative treatments like manual lymph drainage, compression garments, and compression pumps to aid in our lymph flow, and medications for pain, depression, and sleep. But we require individual care plans around our long list of comorbidities.
0: It sounds like it's a multidisciplinary approach that you really need a medical doctor and maybe a chiropractor and maybe a, a therapist. A team. sleep. <laughs> yes, yeah, you need a whole team of yeah. people um, to help you uh, live with this. What is some of the...
4: realistic, but in uh, well, reality, that's what we absolutely need. Absolutely,
0: and I imagine very few get that. What are some of the issues you face from health care providers in trying to deal with um, your Durkham's disease?
4: Well, this is the most difficult part for me, but I feel that many have the same stuff going on, but I feel that we're being mentally and physically abused by all levels of care due to the lack of understanding, education, and training about fat disorders. And then there's the fat bias. Like, for example, I wasn't believed that I had an unrelated issue. I was mocked, sent home without any medical investigation until I crashed. But I really delayed the require like it really delayed the required surgical procedure I needed, and I suffered for months in acute pain. That was really dark time.
0: Right. So you had another issue, another medical issue, and they just assumed or they just chalked it up to your Durkham's disease.
4: Yeah, you're just in here whining with fibro or Durkham's. Yeah, yeah, and out the door I went.
0: Oh dear. I was
4: mocked for something, and I don't want to. And put that's that out there, and
0: but. and I think you know. Not everything is taught in medical school, and certainly doctors take certain pathways to specialize in certain areas. Yeah. and And so I don't think it's intentional on on their part. And I think you know, typically physicians are kind and compassionate and caring, at least they start out that way. Um, that's the intent. You know, and the medical system adds a lot of complexities uh, to the delivery of care as well. But um, what is the one thing you'd like listeners to understand about durkham's disease and and other fat disorders?
1: Well,
4: that we really need all medical professionals to get education and training on Durkham's disease and fat disorders, rare or not. Like, And there's Fat Disorders Conference in the U.S. every April. They do offer medical credits, and we desperately need a specialist to attend to, resep, to like represent Canadians who truly have no voice. So thank you for giving me one today, Maureen.
0: Well, thank you. I've done nothing. Thank you for sharing your story. I really appreciate it. All of us
4: appreciate that. Even Dr. Herbst, when she hears about it, she'll be
1: ecstatic.
0: Oh, well, you know, the more we can do to get the word out, and uh, and I could not have done that without you. So thank you so much. I wish you all the best. I wish you good health, and, um, you know, hopefully your symptoms are managed in the best way possible, and, and you've certainly helped other people out there, I'm sure, and other people who may be suffering with the same thing and have not yet been diagnosed.
4: Well, many are out there, that's for sure. But maybe if you can post my links that I sent to you, I would so appreciate it so someone can find me and even if they suspect it or a family member, just contact me. I'm here for anyone. And I have what's the best way, way to find con- here.
0: What is the best way to contact you? I will post those links.
4: Um, the best way, if someone wants to join my Facebook group, or they can read the paper that I posted. The this recent paper I'm talking about covers all fat disorders, and also my. Um, I was going to say I said my Facebook group. See, I'm getting here nervous again.
0: Oh, don't <laughs> worry about it. It's but I just sent me. You the link,
4: and I'm <laughs> open to anyone contacting me in almost any way.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I-
4: you doing
0: this for us all. Oh, not at all. No. Thank you very much. You're the one. Kim, it's awesome having you. Much appreciated. Okay. Take care, Maureen. You too. All right. Thank you. Okay, coming up next, uh, the Church of England has assumes that uh, heterosexual married people are having sex. <laughs> I beg to differ, and so does my guest. Perhaps <laughs> anyway, we're going to talk about that statement and remind them that it is 2020. I'm Maureen McGrath, and this is the Sunday Night Hell Show.
1: It's time for the Bedroom Bulletin.
0: Welcome back to the Sunday Night Hell Show. I need a bed. <laughs> been a struggle tonight, I've got to admit. Um, But this is a fun segment. Uh, I do want to talk a little bit about sex and the benefits of sex. Now, there really hasn't been a tremendous amount of research correlating great sex to well-being. There was a recent study led by Todd Kashtan and colleagues that um, sought to understand the relationship between sex and well-being. And, and so they basically looked at um, a number of people that, um, who were enjoying this pleasurable experience um, or experiences and they were either single, they were in long-term relationships or short-term relationships and they had, they were to have sex and then complete daily surveys for three weeks and they predicted that there would be a positive association between sexual activity and well-being. And so, in other words, that they were related, and then as one increases, so will the other. And so they pretty much found out that um, the sexual, if you had sex one night then it affected your well-being the next day um, and so they they wrote down their positive and negative emotions and how meaningful that was in their life and they found that yes in fact um, the sexual activity the intimacy and the pleasure ratings predicted um, po- more positive moods the next day so so that's pretty much um, to be expected and um, So it was pretty much as well that it wasn't that long lasting, but the next day they felt um, pretty good compared to the participants who did not have sex the previous day. Uh, Those who had had sex on the previous day also reported higher levels of positive emotion and lower levels of negative emotion. So uh, there is this was only in one direction. And what, what that means is that the sexual activity predicted a higher sense of well-being, but higher levels of well-being did not predict sexual activity. You get it? Okay, you got to get it in order to get it. Um, and and also in this, the quality of the sex mattered. And, and this aligns with um, what I see in my clinical practice Um uh, of course uh, the, the the importance of sex in relationship to well being it 's very important to study this so that we can then further have information uh, to explain to couples who are suffering in sexless marriages or in or in less than exciting sex um, and so you may actually um, gain have better gains in your life and personal well being. Um, after you have had sex the night before. And you can have sex with yourself. Uh, And I don't think in this study they they did look at that. But one way to have great sex is through orgasming. Uh, And in fact, not just one, but multiple orgasms. And not just for women, uh, but for men as well. And there are certainly ways. Now a lot of people will tell you to focus on the journey, that the journey is just as important as the destination. (laughs) And I'm going to say no. Focus on the destination for crying out loud. (laughs) We can all of the journey. So, in order to focus on the destination, you got to relax. Really relax. Um, you know, and that's really difficult for a lot of people to actually settle down and relax, whether you ma- male, female, they, whatever. It's so difficult given your life's experiences. But do whatever it takes. Light some candles, massage, try meditating, whatever helps you calm down. Um, when you're stressed out, your cortisol levels rise and you go into this survival mode. And, and nobody can have any fun when you're in survival mode. The other thing is uh, breathing. Breathing is really important, especially in terms of, of orgasming, orgasming multiple times which I want you to do uh, so you know make sure that you can take a deep breath a lot of people who are stressed and maybe have anxiety they report an, a, an inability to take a deep breath and so you want to be able to do that uh, because that is going to impede the success of your orgasm or your orgasms so breathing is key so specifically that conscious rhythmic breathing so it helps you to be alive and to be in the moment and Speaking of being in the moment, you got to be in the moment in order to um, experience an orgasm. And tremendous research done by Dr. Lori Brado here at the BC Centre for Sexual Medicine in Vancouver demonstrated that, that being in the moment, focusing on your genitalia, not thinking about your shopping list or what color you wanted to paint the ceiling... Think about somebody else, that may actually improve. So, fantasy is also important. Embracing other forms of touch. So, you want to stimulate the multiple erogenous zones. So, you need to take some time here. Take some time to Uh, massage one another to caress, um, nipples, feet, inner thighs, the neck. You want to increase your pleasure and spread those sensations throughout your entire body. And and also, you know, don't limit yourself. Don't just lie there. It's important to be vocal, move your body in a way that feels good to you. A lot of people have body image issues. Um, And so, you know, if you have body image issues, Deal with it. <laughs> There's certainly ways to love your own body. I mean, all bodies are are beautiful, but it doesn't matter if you don't love your own body. And keep in mind that anybody and everybody can have a multiple orgasm, but it does take practice and it does take kind of this this orchestra to be in tune. Um, and and people, you know, will strive for this because multiple orgasms, in addition to um, simultaneous orgasms, are kind of the holy grail of sexual pleasure. So if you're having some difficulty, you may want to bring some toys into the bedroom. And you know, again, you do not have to be with a partner. You can be by yourself. There's nothing wrong with solo sex. In fact, it's it's critical to um su- successful sexuality because you have to understand what feels good for you. In order to explain that to the partner or the partners that you're with. And so experiment with, with toys, but look no further than the womanizer because that is the best one. And many women report um, multiple orgasms with uh, the womanizer. One after another, after another, after another. I mean, 10, 12, 15. And, and al- also, I see a lot of women in my clinical practice who have primary anorgasmia. In other words, they have never experienced an orgasm. Now, there can be a number of reasons um, you know, that they are not comfortable with their own sexuality. They are not comfortable touching themselves. They haven't touched themselves. They don't know what feels good. They're, this whole shame infliction and guilt infliction or sex is dirty Um, bit, but also uh, some women have not been educated that one needs clitoral stimulation in order to experience an orgasm. And also the vulva is uh, filled with nerves um, in in order to increase your chance of having multiple orgasms. So it's not just one area, not just your clitoris, but other areas as well. I don't know if you had an opportunity to watch uh, the much uh, maligned uh, Goop Lab of Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, you know, maligned by a lot of traditional Healthcare practitioners and railing up against her. Um, but you know, her goop lab was actually quite interesting. Um, I think I'm through about four or five of them. Uh, there's about six of them. And especially the one on sex and sexuality was, I, I think, very important information for a lot of women. So the more information you can get, the better it is. Ditch the shame around sex as well. Sex is about pleasure, nothing else. For men, um, for men you who've typically or traditionally thought that they were only able to um, have uh, one orgasm, you may want to experiment with a couple of, of different techniques. For example, uh, trying trying an orgasm without ejaculation. So when you do not ejaculate, when it's not part of the equation, it is possible to maintain peak arousal levels after orgasm without losing your erection. And, and orgasms are all about peak arousal levels. So you want to uh, experiment when with some of these. For example, if you want to reach the highest point of that plateau stage, and let me just review quickly the sexual response cycle, the linear model, which is desire, arousal, excitement, lubrication, plateau, orgasm, resolution. So when you reach that highest point of the plateau stage just before orgasm, stop and stay still. Squeeze your pelvic floor muscle, the, your rectal muscle. That involves lifting and squeezing your... Rectal muscle basically, as though you're trying to lift a blueberry into your anus. Um, and so, or Um, that will cause the base of your penis to come in and your scrotum to lift up and that presses firmly into the area of your perineum so just in front of your anus and behind your scrotum and that will stimulate your prostate. Take deep breaths allow the prostatic contractions and orgasmic sensations to travel throughout your body and when your orgasmic contractions cease then you want to relax your pelvic floor muscles and take a few deep breaths before resuming stimulation so follow that and you'll be more likely to experience multiple orgasms Um, so remember probably the most important thing here is do not see the first orgasm as the final destination and do not just focus on the journey and give up on the destination focus on the destination I am Maureen McGrath and we're headed toward the end of the program the destination or since some sometimes you might say the orgasm enjoy it it's for pleasure only I am Maureen McGrath and this is the Sunday Night Health Show